Hello everyone and welcome to Changing Conversations with me, Billy Burke. And me, Sarah Philp. We're really glad you've joined us on this podcast. This podcast is all about changing conversation. Conversation is one of the oldest ways to nurture the conditions for growth and improvement. We come alive when we talk about what's important to us and it's this that has the potential to guide us into new and different ways of being and offer the potential for great things. In this podcast, we want to explore the big questions and the small questions. It's a place for thinking and conversations that hold the potential for change. You will hear from us as well as some of our guests. We would love to hear from you and for you to get involved. You can also follow us on Twitter at Changing Conversations. In this episode, we speak with Scottish secondary school head teacher Bruce Robertson. Bruce is also an author of three books called The Teaching Delusion. And we asked Bruce what drove him to write the books, what the core principles are um, throughout. And we asked him to reflect on how schools can embed a passion for ongoing improvement of teaching and learning. We also speak to Bruce about what he wishes that he'd known when he started his career as a, as a teacher. Um, and we ask him for the, the things that keep coming up when he uh, works on improvement of teaching and learning and talks to others about improving this in their own settings. Bruce, hi. Welcome to Changing Conversations. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Billy. Hi, Sarah. Great to be with you both. How are you? Good. Thank you. Busy. Busy, but good. Busy, but good. Um, and hopefully good busy instead of just busy, busy. Um, yeah, good busy. Uh, busy time of year. We've got exams on in school, but um, that doesn't mean that anything really calms down. We are into improvement planning season. So there's an awful lot of work that needs to be done um, around reviewing our current year's improvement plan and then putting together the improvement plan for next year. Living and breathing, breathing that at the moment as well. Um, so within all that, we really appreciate you giving time to have a conversation with us today. Um, we want to speak to you, obviously, about um, the the books that you've that you've written, your your passion for the the topics that you cover there within, and that's obviously been influenced by the work. That you that you've done and that and that you do, so the the trilogy is the teaching delusion. So let let's start there, Bruce. Why why the teaching delusion? So the book wasn't originally going to be called the teaching delusion. The book was going to be called something like towards great teaching, right? Okay. Because fundamentally, that's what the book is about. It's about great teaching. What great teaching is, how we go about developing great teaching in classrooms um, and the word towards uh, suggesting, you know, movement forwards. So I thought that was quite a, a nice title um, until I, I run it by one of my friends who's um, he's a good critic. He's a good friend and he's a good critic. And uh, when I, when I told him what the title was going to be, he just went yawn. So he said, I needed something punchier. He said that was just going to sit on the shelf. So, you know, he pushed me a bit and he said, well, what's the book about? I said, well, great teaching. He said, well, come on, more than that. I said, well, it's actually at its core about the fact that um, a lot of people 
believe that they know what great teaching is. They, they think that they know what great teaching is, but actually, um, if they're, they're challenged on that, a lot of people who work in teaching, teachers and school leaders, um, maybe don't have as clear an idea about what great teaching is as they maybe believed that they did. So he said, um, so they're deluded. And hence the teaching delusion. That's where it came from. So quite a bold title, quite quite punchy. Um, but if you've read the book, um, hopefully it comes across that it, it's, it's a very supportive book and it's squarely on the side of teachers. I say in the book that teaching is the most important job in the world. We're in the business of transforming lives. And um, because it's so important, we all have a professional obligation to keep, keep on getting better and better and better at what we do. So the subtitle of the book is Why Teaching Isn't Good Enough and How We Can Make It Better. And that, that idea that it's not good enough is really this belief that it's, it's never actually good enough. We need, we need all of us to be working together to keep making our teaching better and better and better for the good of the young people who we're teaching. Yeah. So quite provocative, but really it, it boils down to the, the core business, the core craft of, of what we do. Right. And, um, you know, when, when, when people hear the title, when, when they hear about the book, um, it, it definitely captures their interest. It, it gets their attention. Um, and that's, that's a good thing. Um, then when people start to read it, uh, I get a lot of people say, well, they start to read just the first few pages and then, and then they couldn't stop. So, so that's good. That's, that's nice feedback that, that it, that it hooks people in maybe with its title and then through what it's saying, they want to keep on going. Yeah. Okay. And then, and so in terms of what, what you're saying, cause the craft of teaching is, is so wide, isn't it? And uh, learning theories, it's massive. Um, where to start. So obviously you've, uh, you're, you've written three books around it. Might even be plans for more. We can get into that later. Um, but what would you say are the kind of core themes or core principles that, that you would want someone who reads your book to walk away with? So the books are really about three things. They're about pedagogy, which I frame as the how of teaching. They're about curriculum which I frame as the what of teaching. And they're about leadership in schools, middle and senior leadership. And those are probably the three broad overarching themes of the books. Um, the first book is divided into three parts. Um, it kicks off with a model, um, a three-part model um, made up of some cogs. And it suggests that the first cog is a shared understanding of what makes great teaching. And we need, to, we need to really focus on that in schools, getting a shared understanding throughout the school, within the teaching body and within the leadership body about what great teaching really is. That's cog one. Cog two is a strong professional learning culture. So basically systems and resources and mindset all working together um, to form a culture of continuous improvement. If those two cogs took turn, that, that shared understanding of what great teaching really is and, and the focus on developing a strong professional learning culture, well then that third and most important cog starts to turn, which is uh, transformations in teaching and learning practice in classrooms, in, in teams, and 
across schools. So the first part of the first book is about a shared understanding of what great teaching is. The second part is about the development of strong professional learning cultures. And then the third part um, actually borrows that original title that I referred to, Towards Great Teaching in Classrooms and Across Schools. So, so that's book one. Book two, um, the parts are simpler. Part one is curriculum, part two is pedagogy, and part three is leadership. Book three is subtitled Power Up Your Pedagogy, and it's all about classroom practice. Um, it, it breaks classroom practice down into 12 different elements, and then it has a, a deep dive into those elements. Um, for example, how we present content, how students practice, differentiation, feedback, use of learning intentions, success criteria. Um, and it really is a deep dive into, into those elements. And, and you view the staff, including staff at Lone School, who have who have read the book, and we've got a uh, learning teaching committee that have mm -hmm. uh, focused in on elements of it. You do you see it as a stimulus in and of itself for professional learning? Is it a is it a map for um, potential improvement plan, etc.? How how would you recommend that if someone hasn't lifted it yet, that they could use it within a school? So books one and two are structured quite similarly. Um, and, and they are very much about professional learning, um, but they're probably best read sequentially. Whereas book three is, is quite different. Book three is a book that you could just pick up and select a particular area. So you might be interested in improving your practice around questioning or behavior management or success criteria. And the book is split quite clearly into those sections. So if as a school, everyone is being asked to focus on questioning, then you could use that as a whole school resource. If as a particular team, a department say, um, a year stage, um, everybody's focusing on differentiation, well, then you could use it for the same purpose. Or if you as an individual, simply wanted to focus on, on, on learning intentions. That's the thing that you want to focus on. Well, you can use it for that. And um, what, we, what, what I did recently in, in the last year or so was I, I turned that third book into an updated version. I was working with Fanola Wilson from Impact Wales, and we turned the Teaching Delusion 3, Power Up Your Pedagogy, into a new book, Power Up Your Pedagogy, the Illustrated Handbook of Teaching. Um, and we're really quite excited about that book. Um, it, it is a handbook that, as I say, teachers can just pick up. Um, it's beautifully illustrated with the sketch notes that have been produced by Fanola. And if you've had a chance to have a look at that book, you'll know that each section um, concludes with some reflective tasks. So some very specific questions that teachers can use individually um, or with, with colleagues um, as a prompt for critical reflection and discussion. Um, this might be an unfair question, like asking you to pick your favourite child, but <laughs> do, you, do you have a favourite book? You know, was there one that you, I don't know, particularly enjoyed writing or one that you are quite excited about compared to the others? I think the most useful book for teachers is the newest book. 
power up your pedagogy, the illustrated handbook of teaching. I think there is something in there for everyone. So I think that's the most useful. If there was any one of the books that I was going to suggest that a teacher got, it would be that newest book. But my favourite book, Sarah, to answer your question, is probably the second book, um, Teaching Delusion 2, Teaching Strikes Back. Um, there's a lot in that book. Um, I'm really quite pleased with how I was able to pull together different strands um, around different themes curriculum, for example, which is a really hot topic in Scottish education at the moment, a really top, hot topic um, in many different countries. But yeah, a particularly hot topic for, for Scotland at the moment. And I'm really quite pleased with how I was able to frame my, my argument. And it's to be clear, it's just it's, it's my argument and um, drawing on the work of others and, and their views. But it's, it's a particular perspective on curriculum. And I, I'm very I'm pleased with how I articulated that. Yeah. Um, it then moves into pedagogy and then it moves into school leadership. And Robin McPherson, who had who wrote the foreword to the first book and then wrote the foreword to the second book, um, he commented in, in that foreword to the second book that he could see that my thinking on school leadership had had evolved and moved forward. So I'm really I'm I'm quite pleased with the way that the, the messages in that second book are presented. That's my favourite, The Teaching Delusion 2, but I think the most useful is Power Up Your Pedagogy, the Illustrated Handbook of Teaching. Yeah, and you you touched on it there, like how your your writing has evolved or how your views have, have evolved. Like, how do, you, how do you go about this? Because I'm sure uh, time must be a factor. <laughs> <laughs> but well, also you know where where do you get all your your ideas your stimulus from how does how do you do it because I know everybody writes differently and I'm always curious what's what's your approach I've never been a huge reader if I'm being honest mm. um, back in about 2016 I was the deputy head in Eyemouth High School and I was considering headship and to become a head teacher in Scotland now you need to complete part of a master's qualification called into headship so I was part of the first cohort to complete into headship with the University of Edinburgh. And we were expected to do a lot of reading every month for that course. Mm. And when that was put to us, you know, I was, I was, I was quite shocked. How am I supposed to do the job of mm. deputy head teacher, which is quite a challenging job. Um, how am I expected to do that job and to commit to all of the reading and then the writing, because you, you were expected to do a lot of writing to articulate what you had taken from the reading. So I wasn't looking forward to that at all. I hadn't done anything like that in about 20 years since I'd been an mm -hmm. undergraduate. But actually, I found that I quite enjoyed it. Um, the way that I did it, well, I just have to change my, my routines a little bit. I have to set the, the alarm an hour earlier in the morning. And, you know, I found I actually enjoyed that, getting up an hour earlier. I'm not really a morning person, but getting up an hour earlier, making a cup of coffee, doing that reading, um, and it fired me up. And there were particular texts that, that I was expected to read as part of that course, but that kind of, um, that sparked my interest to, 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 to just go a little bit wider than that. So I started to pick up books like um, Daniel Willingham's Why Don't Students Like School? or Tom Sherrington's The, the Learning Rainforest. That's, that's had a big influence on me. Mm -hmm. um, 
and it's a bit like a snowball. Mm-hmm. You know, once I once I got going with it, it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And um, yeah, and, and that's my experience of working with teachers. If you can signpost to to books, say, mm-hmm. that really do spark the interest of teachers, well, what you find is they they want to engage with that reading. Mm-hmm. They're more than happy to put the time in because they enjoy it, they find it interesting. Ultimately, it helps them with their work to to get better at what they're doing. And as I say in the books, when we get better at what we're doing, we tend to enjoy what we're doing more. So one of my favorite quotes from a teacher who um, had been teaching for around 30, 35 years in IMF High School was that that, that these sorts of books were mind expanding. And I think that's right. it helps you to reframe everything that you've been doing. When I say I wasn't a huge reader, you know, within my job, I, I'd obviously read an awful lot of national policy, say, <laughs> documents like building the curriculum. Yeah. Uh, these are important documents to have read, but um, it's coming at things from a particular angle. And, and dare I say, sometimes they can be a little bit dry. Mm. Sure. And if, you, and if you just ask teachers to keep on rereading the building the curriculum series, I think you know you get the same reaction as I got to the original title of the teaching delusion. You get a big yaw. Mm-hmm. But you pick the right text, the sorts of texts that fire people up, that teachers genuinely think are useful and interesting. Well, yeah, that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. And so over the time, both as as a head teacher and both in your work as and your interactions as a as an author and as a a, a speaker, I guess. What have you learned about how we embed this, this passion for learning and professional learning and, and, and improvement? And you talked about, you know, we can always get better, but also sometimes that comes with a resistance of can't can't this just be good enough? You know, how so how do we get past that and into the space where we are keen at a collective level to keep learning and growing together? So all schools are different and, and all schools are the same. Um they're the same in that across the staff body, you have experience and a lack of experience. Mm-hmm. Um, you have teachers who are especially strong in the classroom, and you have teachers who are perhaps not quite so strong for whatever reason. Yeah. You have teachers who are really, really keen to engage in professional learning, any professional learning that's on offer. Mm-hmm. You've got teachers who are a bit more reluctant and you've got teachers for whom this is the absolute last thing that they want to be spending any time on. So when I say that schools are different, but also the same, they're the same in that that's that's the general makeup of a school. So if you're trying to develop a strong culture of professional learning in a school, you have to accept that and you have to accept that you can't have a one size fits all model. You need a lot of the time to encourage and to persuade, and you need to put on a broad offer that's high quality. You've got a broad offer, but there's no quality there, then people are not going to engage with it. If you've got a very narrow offer that is high quality, well, you're not going to to fire everyone up in the same way because that's that's just not what what does it for them. So I'm the, the rector, the head teacher of Berwickshire High School, 
And one of the first things that I did when I took up post was I appointed a principal teacher of pedagogy. This is a person who is a very good teacher themselves, who is absolutely committed to their own continuous learning and development, and who has great people skills. And that person is non-teaching for about three to four days a week. And that person drives an awful lot of the professional learning offer that, that's available in the school. We've set up um, a high quality in-school professional learning library. So it's packed full of great books. Um, the principal teacher of pedagogy chairs a professional, he leads a professional reading group um, once a fortnight on a Wednesday from four until five. Because during, during, um, during lockdown, when a lot of this work was just was just getting started and these meetings were on teams and um, he found that that time of four to five didn't suit a lot of people who wanted to take part in the professional reading and discussion mm -hmm. so they had an evening group as well mm -hmm. and that's a good example of how he works that he offers this four to five session but then he offers another session at, at a different time to, to try and, and and get the people who, who really do want to come but but who could he does the same thing with the lunchtime workshops that he offers every Monday and every Thursday at lunchtime. He leads a workshop that's focused on pedagogy, say, um, promoting thinking and making thinking visible. Sometimes he's leading that himself. Sometimes he's using YouTube clips. Um, it's voluntary. Some of the people who are part of the professional reading group come along to the workshop sessions and some don't. Some go to one, some go to the other. Some don't come to any of those things. Mm -hmm. Every second Monday, we have a whole staff professional learning session. Sometimes it's led by him, sometimes it's led by me, sometimes it's led by other teachers. We have a really strong peer observation program. Mm -hmm. um, these are just some examples of the different initiatives um, that we've put in place, most of which are voluntary, most of which people choose to come along to. And um, once the word starts to spread that this is actually really interesting, this is really useful, this is something that would really benefit, well, then people just get tapped on the shoulder by colleagues and, and they come along. So I think that's what culture is all about, you know, persuading and encouraging, not forcing. Last thing to say, every teacher in the school has what we call a professional learning plan, a PLP. And they've identified, they identify every term, a very specific aspect of their teaching that they want to improve. Feedback, see. Yeah. Um, but the point with that is that everybody has their own plan and there's a degree of autonomy that comes with that. So no teacher is being told that you must focus on improving the quality of your feedback in lessons. No teacher is being told you must improve the quality of your plenary review. There's that degree of, of autonomy and that's very important to help motivate people. I guess a common barrier that comes up in so many things that we talk about is time. You know, mm -hmm. any thoughts or reflections on that? Because I'm sure you must have heard time being a barrier. All the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. What do we do with that? <laughs> well, there's no silver bullet. No. But there are lots of small things that we can do. So... We can use the working time agreement that we have, which is that, that document that maps out the, the 195 hours 
um, of time that goes beyond the 22 and a half hours maximum contact time that teachers have in the classroom and the seven and a half hours that they would have going alongside that for preparation and correction. We can use the working time agreement to signal to teachers that professional learning is important. So everybody has this uh, natural contractual, contractual obligation to 35 hours of professional learning, sometimes called CPD. If you look at the working time agreement for Berwickshire High School, we have an additional 30 hours that go beyond that. So if you work that out across the 39 week year, that's about 45 minutes per week. And we can signal that to staff. That's there, 45 minutes per week. Um, we have 48 hours, so over an hour a week, of flexibility time. So you can use that time how you want. You could use it for further professional learning, or you might use it for curriculum development, or you might use it for something else. So we can use our working time agreement. We can structure our calendar carefully. So just as an example, the way the Berwickshire High School calendar is structured, that every Monday from four till five, there is a meeting of some kind. Um, every second week, it's in departments. And the alternate weeks, it's as a whole school. And we ask really that that time largely is about professional learning around a particular theme. So everybody knows that that's, that's how we use that time. It, it's there and it's in the calendar. Um, the professional reading group, well, I, I gave the example. It's, it's, it's four till five and people have the, the option to come along or not. But everybody knows that's when it is. It's four till five every second Wednesday. The workshops examples that I gave at, at lunchtimes, it's the Monday or it's the Thursday. Take your pick. You could go to one, you could go to both. You don't need to go to either. And, and that's, that's really how, how we come at it, Sarah. So, Bruce, you've described, obviously, your process of writing and how you've arrived at that and how, how you've chunked it. No doubt a lot of learning for yourself within that. And like me, you, you learn loads as a head teacher about teaching and learning that perhaps you wish you knew when you were at that earlier stage of your, of your career. So the next thing we wanted to ask you then, think, thinking of... Um, the, the content of the books, thinking of the, the work that you do in Berwickshire High School, what, what do you wish that you knew then that you know now? You know, what, what would you do differently, less of, more of, uh, in relation to pedagogy? So there's a quote from Dylan William about cognitive load theory, and it goes along the lines that he, he believes now that cognitive load theory is the single most important thing for teachers. And by extension of that, I would suggest school leaders to understand. I think I say in my books, I certainly say in talks that I give now, that I got all the way through teacher training without anyone ever having explained to me how learning happens, the relationship between working memory and long-term memory. And from that, uh, what cognitive load theory is and, and the implications for classroom practice. That, I was never taught anything like that. There was a lot of philosophy in teacher training, but there wasn't an awful lot about messages from cognitive science about how learning happens. There wasn't an awful lot from educational research about what practices are most likely to work best at particular times and which are not. A lot of philosophy, a lot of ideology. Um, and it's only really since I started 
to read about these things that I've started to learn about these things and then that's that's changed how I look at everything so so what do I wish I'd known I wish I'd known much much more about about cognitive science and how learning happens and cognitive load theory particularly what's often termed extraneous load and certain principles that are extensions of that one which is often referred to as the redundancy effect and the idea that if you've got text on a screen if students are reading that text themselves silently in their heads, but you are also saying something, will those two information streams compete with one another? So in the worst practice, there will, there will be text on screen, which students are being expected to look at and you would assume read themselves while the teacher is talking, but saying something different. If the teacher is just reading out the text on the slides, we've all done it. If the teacher's reading it out, it's very unlikely that the silent voice that the student has in their head is reading at the same pace that the teacher is reading aloud. And therefore the information streams don't complement each other, they compete. Often now, if I give to, to teachers as part of professional development, if I'm, if I'm giving a presentation that say it lasts 45 minutes to an hour, there's probably over a hundred slides in there. And when I say that to people, you know, they're, they're kind of shocked. But what I've done now, what I do now, is that what I might have previously put onto one slide, I'm now using five or six slides for. Because it's, it's all of this, it's the learning that's come from cognitive load theory. It's how working memory processes information. It's about building in longer pauses, say, for messages to sink in. It's about stopping and just saying, just read that to yourself for a moment. And then, and then moving on. So I think probably when I was, when I was starting out, I'd be guilty of cramming far too much information onto one slide because I believed that to have fewer slides was better practice than to have more slides. And I'd probably try to make the slides really attractive, you know, with lots of clip art and um, animations that that didn't actually help with cognitive load. They were extraneous, they were distractions. So I think that, yeah, that's that's probably one of the most important things that, that I wish I'd, I'd known more about. I'm just thinking back to my first teaching practices in maths where um, that wasn't an issue for me, Bruce, because it was blackboard and chalk, and I was so slow at writing on these things that they definitely had take-up time. Um, yeah, yeah. And well, one more thing I'll throw in, Billy. Yeah. I've always taught in quite a direct, interactive way. Oh. But at one stage in my career, maybe maybe I've been teaching for about 10 years or so, I kind of gave in to the push that was coming for students to lead their learning more. And I was teaching a higher chemistry class. And for pretty much the first time in my career, I, I moved to that model. It was more resource-based learning, students um, going at their own pace, and very little whole class direct interactive teaching. And the students in front of me, I could, I could see after, after a few weeks doing this, well, they were getting lost. 
Um, we we created big differences in the room about about where everybody was in their learning, and one of them actually politely said to me, "You're not teaching us anything." And that really hit home to me, because I wasn't I wasn't teaching them anything. I was doing what I had been led to believe was the right thing to do, which was to let them lead their learning more. But actually, I wasn't teaching them anything, and that is um. One of the themes that I was referring to earlier when I was talking about how, how, how often in teaching we think we get what great teaching is, but actually do we? And that's, that's really what the teaching delusion is, is getting at. I guess it depends on whatever the teacher is doing with that particular unique group of young people. It's about what that young person said to you. We're not we're not learning anything, you're not teaching us anything. Mm. If, if the learning is happening in, in whatever way, uh, you know, within the, the agreed framework that you have within your school, within principles of great teaching, um, it's, it's the learning that matters, isn't it? It's the impact. Um, yeah, nothing is taught unless it is learned is a good principle to keep in mind. That yeah. um, what we believe that we are teaching probably isn't being learned initially and we need to do as much as we can to find out to what extent it is being learned and then respond to that yeah. anyone who's read my books will know that i say it's not as black and white as teacher-led learning is good and student-led learning is bad or the opposite as some people would try and frame it that, that's not what i say it's more nuanced than that it's more about the evidence from from research pointing out that whenever anyone, regardless of age, regardless of stage, whenever anyone is starting to learn something new, then typically more teacher-directed approaches will be best for learning in those early stages. But then as expertise starts to develop, what will likely be more effective then is for the teacher to start to come away and for students to start to get to lead their learning more, to make choices in their learning, etc. So it's absolutely not about one or the other. It's about understanding the relationship between teacher-led approaches and student-led approaches and blending them together in sequence and in proportion. Yeah. It, it really highlights the complexity of a nuance that there is in, in teaching, doesn't it? I was always fascinated by uh, Graham Nuttall's research where he put um, microphones on children yeah. Classrooms and the the hidden lives of learners is is his book and just what emerged from that when you kind of go under the surface of what's what's going on and how deep and broad and complicated and complex all of that that is. I think that's a wonderful book, Sarah. I'd highly recommend that to to anyone who's not read it. Yeah, the hidden lives of learners. Yeah, it's an easy read. Yes, it's so engaging. And it's yep. got such powerful messages that, that spring out of almost every page. And one of them is effectively a rule of three. I don't know if he calls it that, maybe he does. But the idea that typically for most of what we want young people to learn in schools, they need to think about that thing, that concept as he frames it, on at least three separate occasions before it is likely to be learned. That's a great rule of thumb. Yeah. And if I go back to Billy's question, about things that maybe I wish I'd, I'd known more about when I started teaching. That rule of three 
that's, that's one that I'd really encourage all teachers and school leaders to keep in mind. It applies as much to staff professional development as it does to anything else, that we need to think about something on at least three separate occasions before it's likely to be learned. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's having the confidence to do that, isn't it, in a way? It's the confidence, like you were saying, you know, to pause and ask people to read things takes a certain kind of confidence in yourself to to hold that space and to hold a room in that kind of way and to hold learners whether they are adult or children or young people yes that's right and then we'll get the time factor comes in as well (laughs) because with, with, with good reason teachers will say but hang on there's a curriculum to get through there isn't enough time that's when we need to be smart about how we're using the time in class we need to utilize things like our homework program but we, we have to come back to the point that just because something has been heard, just because something has been said, just because we've explained something, it doesn't mean it's going to be learned. The, yeah. the nuttle point is that students need the opportunity to think about it on at least three separate occasions before it's likely to be learned. Yeah, yeah. Um, that ties very neatly into my next question, actually. <laughs> um, and I'm curious, is there... Is there something that keeps showing up for you, like a message or a or a something that keeps showing up that in your in your leadership work, something that you have seen a number of times that you keep coming back to? Probably on that theme, the idea that learning doesn't happen by diffusion, mm. as much as we would like to believe that it does, that the best explanation, the best presentation in the world probably won't lead to learning that being familiar with something and learning it are not the same thing. So it's tempting to believe that because something was covered recently, um, students will have learned it. But what we know is that biology dictates over time, learning will fade. And most of us will be overconfident in what we believe we have learned from a lesson, say. And it's why, as I say in the books, if we're trying to gauge the effectiveness of a lesson, um, say in terms of how much students have understood in the lesson, if we use a thumbs up, thumbs down type approach, traffic lights, green, amber, red, um, did everybody understand this? Yes. Well, none of that is actually giving you any evidence at all of learning, nor is it giving you any evidence of understanding. It's giving you evidence of what people believe they have learned, believe they have understood. But what the research will tell us is that most people will be overconfident. We need to build more time in, but it's essential time. We need to build in time for students to prove what they have learned, what they have understood. So that's why in some of the best practice towards the end of a lesson, teachers will use what Doug Lemoff has called an exit ticket, where there's maybe just one or two quick questions at the end of the lesson, students are asked to to write down their answer on a post-it note, the teacher collects them in to say, that's one way to do it. And now there is evidence of what has been understood or not. It's why show me boards can be so powerful. And it's why I, I encourage teachers so often to use show me boards in almost every lesson, because they give you the opportunity um, in a fast and efficient way to get very powerful formative information about what students are actually thinking. So what's next? Is there a fourth book? Is there another trilogy? (laughs) 
Am I, is that not able to be shared? Or does it, is, is it not yet known? <laughs> I'm taking a break for the moment. Mm -hmm. Because um, I think you asked me at the beginning how I was, and I said busy, busy <laughs> but good. So yeah. I am busy but good. I think there will be some more books um, in the not too distant future. Um, but for the moment, I'm just I'm taking a bit of a pause. Um, Fanola Wilson from Impact Wales and I um, were really pleased with how um, Power Up Your Pedagogy, the Illustrated Handbook of Teaching, has been received. Um, and I, I think we just. Um, we need to let we need to let that book just get out there for a little while. Bruce, really interesting insight into not only the the books and the content of the books, but how your development and your practice as a as a school leader has has influenced that within your own context as well. We we finished with a couple of questions, um, and we've spoken round about this. I'm aware that you you weren't you were admitted. Uh, that you were not much of a reader, you are now. Um, so tell us what you're reading at the moment. Well, at the moment, um, I've just got a copy of uh, the new book by Peps Macria, uh, Developing Expert Teaching. So I've just started. Um, I love Peps's books. So that's his newest one, just, just came out in the last week or so. So, so that's the one that I'm reading. What's off the press? Great tip. Thank you. And do you have a quote or a message that you would like to leave our listeners with? So each of the Teaching Delusion books kicks off with a quote. So I think I'll just leave listeners with the quote from what is my favourite of the trilogy, Teaching Delusion 2, Teaching Strikes Back. So it's an Aldous Huxley quote. There's only one corner of the universe you can be certain of improving and that's your own self mm. and i think that captures the essence of the books we can't force people to improve people need to want to improve school leaders need to support teachers to improve that's that's probably the core aspect of, of the job of a school leader is to help everyone who's working in a school get better and better and better at what they do. I often talk about investing in our staff to invest in our, in our pupils. It's through that strong professional learning offer that we were talking about that teachers and support staff will get better and better at what they do. And therefore, the learning and the experiences of the young people who come to our schools will get better and better and better. Mm. I like that. I think it's also quite empowering because I think it can become overwhelming when you look at the entirety of everything yeah. <laughs> um, and see all that could be done. And actually, yeah, focusing in on ourselves and our corner of that can actually be quite empowering when it does feel overwhelming. Um, as Billy said, thank you for your time um, at a busy time of, of the year, but also for, I think, the clarity as well that you've brought to 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 your books as a resource and how they can be used, but also how they've evolved um, and giving us some insights into the things that keep coming up. And actually it's good for all of us to be aware of those things and think about them, not just with our children and young people, but with, with our adults as well. So thank you for, for going between the two there. Um, but thank Thanks, you. Sarah. Thanks, Billy.
Thank you for listening, folks. We really value you taking the time and space to join us, and we hope that you take something positive from it. We'd love to hear your reflections, so please get involved via Twitter or contact us directly by email. Thanks again. Stay safe and take good care.